Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. The webinar series, The Impact of Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders in Substance Use Treatment and Improving Outcomes in Substance Use Treatment by Modifying Approaches for Individuals with FASD, will be held in two parts on November 30th, 10 a.m. to 12.15 p.m. Eastern Time, and December 2nd. 10 a.m. to 12.15 p.m. Eastern Time. When an individual has behaviors that cause difficulty in treatment settings, we often label the person as being non-compliant, unmotivated, or disruptive. When they are back in treatment numerous times, we say they're not ready for sobriety. However, their behavior may well be due to brain damage caused by prenatal alcohol exposure which is much more common than most people suspect. Due to this damage, which spans the intellectual spectrum, evidence-based practices that rely on verbal interactions and reward and consequence systems are often not successful with them and set them up to fail. The majority of those with an FASD are not diagnosed and many have been misdiagnosed. As a result, typical interventions for them in substance use and mental health treatment, corrections, child welfare, and other systems of care are often ineffective and are frequently contraindicated. This two-part webinar series presentation addresses the importance of recognizing an FASD in individuals in substance use treatment. The brain damage seen in FASD is examined and a method to identify those with an FASD is described. The two-part webinar series is sponsored by Proof Alliance of North Carolina, the ARC of North Carolina, and NWAHEC. Please note that participants must register for each session separately. To register online, visit www.northwestahec.org slash 66332 for the first presentation and www.northwestahec.org slash 6671 for the second webinar. The information and link for this two-part webinar series will be listed in today's program notes for episode 100 of FASD Hope. I'm happy to announce that this is our 100th episode of FASD Hope. And today's episode, Advocacy in Action, a conversation with Dan Dabosky. Welcome to our 100th episode of FASD Hope. I am so honored and thankful to, to be doing this for 100 episodes. And I am so honored and thankful for today's guest. Appropriately enough, we're airing this Thanksgiving week, and I'm very thankful for today's guest because he is really such an FASD champion. That's the word I would use to describe today's guest. He's a champion. He is an FASD 
professional, a specialist, an educator, an advocate, and so much more. And we're going to talk about something that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time, which is FASD and substance use and that that interconnection. So with that very long, lengthy introduction, I would like to welcome Dan Dabowski. Dan, welcome to FASD Hope. Thank you very much, Natalie. I am really excited to be here. And I am really excited to hear what you have to say about today's topic. We're talking, we're, I'm calling this advocacy in action because I really think about your career in, in FASD and your legacy in FASD as advocacy in action. Um, but we're also going to talk about an upcoming webinar presentation series you're doing about FASD and substance use, which I think is really, really important. I'm just, again, I'm just thankful you're here. So, so Dan, for those listeners who are not aware of your connection in FASD or your work and really just all the years of advocacy that you've been in FASD. Can you please just share how you became involved in FASD advocacy, education, and, and just everything that you've, you've been doing? Sure, because my background is as a mental health clinician. And um, I worked in a lot of different settings. And actually, my first job was in a residential treatment center with children and adolescents uh, in the middle of New York City. Uh, lots of 45 kids with lots of acting out behaviors. It was my favorite job. And I was direct care staff. Um, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And then I did other work. And then when my son was about seven years old, he was having problems. He didn't do well in school. And our education system and other systems also have what I think is a bizarre approach, which is you have to fail at something in order to get maybe what you need. Um, so I said, he needs a, a special, a small first grade class. No, we'll put him in regular class first grade. If he doesn't do well, then we'll talk about another class. Of course, he failed in regular class, put in a small special education class. And what I know now is the worst class for a kid with an FASD is a small special education class with acting out kids. Because one of the things in FASD is that people tend to learn best by modeling the behavior of those around them not by being told what to do, shown what to do, consequence for not doing it, but by modeling. So of course he modeled the other kids in the classroom and acted out more. Didn't get along with the kids in the neighborhood. And the clincher for me was he wasn't responding to my amazing parenting techniques. And I figured there had to be something wrong with him. It couldn't possibly be me. So I brought him to a neurologist and the neurologist did a cursory neurological exam. And she said, does he drink? And I said, no. I don't think so. I hope not. He's only seven. Why would you ask me if he drinks? She said, well, his reflexes are uneven. And usually that's indicative of drug or alcohol use in an individual or in their parents. And that was 1982. And there was very little I could find out about it. And for the next seven years, we really struggled. Bill started gathering diagnoses like ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, reactive attachment disorder, which I call the triumvirate of misdiagnoses in FASD. Uh, none of the treatments, of course, were effective. So he was labeled as being non-compliant, uncooperative, unmotivated. And in 1989, when he was almost 15 years old, my aunt called me up one day and she said, I just read this book and I think you should read it. And it was The Broken Cord, of course, written by Michael Doris. And I've talked with so many people over the years who have read the book and said, it's so depressing because Michael talked about all the problems he had with his son, 
didn't talk about any of the joys. I read the book and everything he talked about, I said, this is Bill. This is Bill. Oh, this sounds just like Bill. And finally, his behaviors, which for years were labeled as willful, purposeful behaviors that I needed to consequence, began to make sense. Now, so he was almost 15 and it took four more years to get a diagnosis for him. So he was diagnosed with FAS when he was 19 years old. And that meant 19 years of failing in every system of care. And even, so that's what got me involved in this. And even after he got his diagnosis and he also had mental health issues, I would do in-services for every program that he was involved in. And they would say, oh, you know, we're thinking maybe this person, but not Bill, he's too bright. He knows what he needs to do. He can tell us what he needs to do. He's just not motivated. Um, so he kept on failing. So he really taught me. And, and I think the key that he taught me is to think differently about behaviors. And I think that that's the key across the board in understanding FASD is thinking differently about behaviors. Because what we tend to do is we see a behavior in any setting and then we have a response to that behavior. Like, here's the rule, you broke the rule, here's the consequence for breaking the rule. And what we don't do is stop and say, what's causing the behavior? And what's causing the behavior needs to dictate what we do about it. So I think back, you know, after I began to that, that got me on my journey in learning about FASD. So I started really in 1982, but really more in 1989. So it's been a while. And then I started to fight for Bill, you know, with every program he was involved in and, you know, how best to deal with him. And some programs got it. Most of them didn't as he was growing up. And um, I think back to, say, for example, some of the people I worked with as a therapist who would come into my office and put their head down, put their coat over their face. And I would write in their chart, poor eye contact, not motivated for treatment, not recognizing that some of them couldn't tolerate the fluorescent lights in my office. So Bill taught me to think differently. Um, that's what got me involved in this. And then what happened was I was actually working in a, uh, out of a medical school in behavioral healthcare education, writing courses and teaching courses in uh, mental health and substance use. And I, I wrote a course on FASD. Back then it was FAS and FAE and couldn't get and this was for the state of Pennsylvania and couldn't get more than 12 people to come to it, you know, because nobody thought that they had anything to do with this. I got involved in helping, you know, trying to advocate for involved, you know, getting FASD in some documents that were written in adolescent substance use treatment. And that was a struggle because it's like, no, 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 this is what, how you treat things. And, and then a friend of mine called me up and said one day and said, there's this, um, job advertised as an FASD specialist for this new FASD Center for Excellence based it at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And I loved what I was doing, but I thought, okay, time to put up or shut up. And um, I applied for the job and I got it. So for about 14 years or so, 14 or 15 years, I was the FASD specialist for the SAMHSA FASD Center for Excellence, which was this federal initiative to address FASD until the government defunded it. So, and being the specialist there, you know, it was like constantly fighting. And the other thing was, you know, on a federal level, if like CDC or NIAAA uh, or SAMHSA would talk about interventions for people with FASD at all, they would talk about kids. 
And having raised Bill, I was, well, what about the adolescents and adults? You know, and then trying to get SAMHSA to recognize FASD, even though the funding came through SAMHSA, most of SAMHSA really didn't think, you know, I mean, they deal with mental health and substance use, didn't really think that FASD plays a, a role or has an impact. So I kept fighting. <laughs> I keep on fighting for that. So basically, that's how I got involved in this. And, and you know, what Bill, Bill was my mentor in understanding FASD and understanding what it's like to live with it, and especially understanding what it's like to live with a hidden disability that nobody recognizes. And to be told over and over again by your parents, by your teachers, by everybody else, you're just not trying hard enough. You can do it if you want. And if you're really motivated, then you'll do what you need to do. And we look for what the person likes to do. And then we use it as a carrot, you know, reward them by letting them do that and take it away if they don't do what they're supposed to, which is a bad approach. So, you know, it's, it's because of him. So if anybody doesn't like what I do, they can blame Bill. It's not my fault. <laughs> so first of all, this is why I called you a champion, Dan, because you have been fighting for FASD since people since before it became a, a conversation. Now, of course, people are talking about it more and we have the FASD Respect Act and here we go and advocates in every state. But Dan, you started fighting for FASD long before this was, you know, again, you know, I'm as you're giving your intro, I'm just nodding my head. Just <laughs> I can't stop nodding my head because so much of what you're saying resonates so much not only with me, but I know with our listeners, especially those of young adults and adults like myself, our son is 19, that have fought and fought to get proper diagnosis. And, you know, our son was 15. And then, and then even then it was a diagnosis. It wasn't here's what to do, you know, right. until we discovered facets. It, it, it wasn't here's what to do. The other thing that strikes a chord with me, Dan, is that what you're talking about in substance use, mental health and FASD and other brain based diagnoses is that we approach recovery, we approach, you know, stability from I want to say, you know, and another guest and I had this conversation about it. We approach it as a society from a moralistic point of view versus a brain based symptomatic point of view. We look at behaviors as, oh, well, like you said, you know, they, they can't do something and they won't do something rather than where in the brain is that coming from? And how can we accommodate? How can, like you said, and, and, and I nodded my head very profusely when you said that he was in a class with other kids with behavioral issues, because that's, that's why we pulled our son out of public school and started homeschooling him, you know, because that was the suggestion. Oh, he's going to go to this alternate. And I was like, no, 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 no. Because then, <laughs> then, you know, they pick up that's, you know, so many people have said, do not have your child in, you know, who has an FASD in a class with kids who are going to act out and everything, because that's the first thing they'll do is they'll pick up on those behaviors because it's that shiny, bright object that they see. So, so much of what you're saying, Dan, just resonates with me. I'm going to thank you a lot during this conversation. <laughs> thank you for fighting. Thank you for fighting on, on behalf of, of these weary parents out here. You have been fighting for decades and and 
I, I thank you. So, um, and finally, the people who teach us the most about FASD are those with lived experience. My, yep. I consider my son to be my best teacher. He teaches me about FASD. I'm, I'm not the teacher. He's the one who teaches me just like I, I hope that parents see that in their children, that you want to learn about it. You learn from your kids or you learn from, you know, those that have lived experience. So, all right, I'm going to get off my soapbox now and give it back to you. <laughs> and I am so thankful again for what you do. Let's talk, you know, we have this discussion with, with so many of our guests. COVID really changed a lot about how we advocate. First of all, accessibility. People have more accessibility to things like webinars, which we're going to, to discuss in a little bit, trainings, things like that. How has the past year and a half, two years, changed your advocacy and your training and education in the FASD field? Well, let me think. It's not a, my first instinct was to say surviving Zoom trainings. Um, because as a, as a trainer, I hate Zoom trainings. Um, because when I do training, I talk with people, I interact with people, I can't see them, I can't see who's getting it, who's not getting it. Uh, people are really reluctant to ask questions, even though I encourage it. Um, so that's been tough. On the other hand, as you said, Natalie, um, there's been more actually ability of people to get involved in trainings because they don't have to travel and they don't have to leave home. And if their kids are home, they can sit and do a training. I can't do day-long trainings anymore via Zoom because I certainly can't sit in front of a computer uh, for, for six hours. I don't think anyone should. Um, so everything is broken up. The most I'll do is three hours at a time, you know, with a break, of course. So um, I've continued actually, and I'm surprised that a lot of people have asked me to do trainings over the last almost two years, of course, all via Zoom. And some of the trainings that I had scheduled as in-person have, again, been uh, turned into Zoom trainings. Uh, how it's presented is a little bit different what's presented, but it, it kind of keeps me going. And really my focus has been on uh, a lot on recognizing FASD, doing kind of getting people to recognize the importance of screening individuals, doing an assessment, and then modifying what they do and having the interventions. Uh, and that's whether they're kids, they're adolescents, they're, or they're adults. And I've been fortunate in for the last I would say almost four years to have been working with the state of Michigan, uh, their, their um, Department of Mental Health Services for Children and Families wanted to develop a protocol to screen any child who comes through public mental health for a possible FASD and then develop some intervention protocols. Um, so I worked on, I looked at a lot of screens that were out there for kids. I wasn't happy with any of them. Um, some of them were just so broad that everybody would get involved. And Michigan wanted kind of a brief screen and then kind of an assessment that would be done by an FASD trained clinician and then some approaches. And the approach that I, that I developed is really called strengths and strategies. It's a strengths and strategies approach. So we've continued to do that and they've done it county by county. And, you know, the goal is to get the whole state to do it, but it's, there are a lot of issues around 
um, workforce and lack of workforce in some of the counties. But, you know, so we have this protocol of providing training on FASD, providing training on screen and assessment tool, providing training on strengths and strategies. And Michigan is also using Families Moving Forward, which is, you know, another um, manualized intervention. And then I do um, coaching calls with staff because one of the things we know is that training by itself doesn't change behavior. It's training with follow-up and coaching. Um, and now we're doing it in um, a county in Pennsylvania, uh, which has been really exciting. But this started with my wanting to work with substance use treatment centers um, to get them to recognize the adults in treatment who had an FASD, because as you said, Natalie, they don't, they don't recognize it. And here, and, and these are the people who keep failing in substance use treatment over and over again. They're the ones who are labeled as treatment failures, difficult to treat, treatment resistant, all those wonderful terms that, that are often used in the field. So I started working with some um, mostly women's residential substance use treatment centers, uh, some in Pennsylvania, some in Minnesota, and in Massachusetts, and to get them to, uh, to so I did training around FASD, training on you know, recognizing the individuals. And then I remember the staff on, you know, and some of them said, well, okay, we see that. How do we identify them? And of course, there have been no screens out there for adults, older adolescents and adults. So I contacted my colleague and friend, Therese Grant at the University of Washington. And Therese has been around for a long time and developed the Parent-Child Assistance Program out at Washington, which is a wonderful program. I love PCAP. It's one of my favorite programs. And I've done training for, her, for PCAP out there with the PCAP advocates. And uh, went out there and um, Therese and Nancy Whitney, who was a clinical supervisor at PCAP and I sat down and we actually developed a screen called the Life History Screen. And it was based on looking at the the difference in responses to questions from um, the most the women in pre PCAP and also our clinical experience, my clinical experience and Nancy's, the difference in response to certain questions from those who had a an FASD themselves and those who had no prenatal exposure. So we and then I handed it out to 22 residential substance use treatment centers in Michigan, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania to get feedback. And then we changed some of the questions, we changed some of the language and developed this, the life history screen. And to me, that was so exciting. And it was the idea of, you know, being able to screen. And the idea was everybody needs to be screened. Um, there was a group in Canada who wanted to validate the screen by choosing who to give it to. It's like, no, that defeats the purpose. You need to screen everybody. And then if somebody screens positive and it'll pick up people with other subtle cognitive impairments, they're also struggling with typical treatment. That's okay. Then you have to have to modify what you do. And we talked about the gold standard is they would be referred to diagno a diagnostic evaluation if that's available. But we know how limited diagnosis is for anybody, but especially for adults. We can't wait for a diagnosis because if we wait for a diagnosis, people die or end up in jail or end up homeless. So that's been my push for the last several years 
And I've continued that push where that's my focus is to get people to recognize individuals with FASD as early as possible, which is why I like Michigan, because we're starting at birth, and then to intervene differently. Um, so uh, it's been a challenge with Zoom because, you know, I like seeing people and especially in practicing things like, you know, how do you interview people? How do you talk about these issues? How do you talk about these issues with a birth family? How do you ask these questions? Um, and being comfortable in asking the questions is really important. And being aware of your own biases is really important. You know, so all of that is part of that discussion. So anyway, that's a, a long, long answer to, you know, kind of my focus in the last, I mean, in the last year and a half, it's been via Zoom. And, and I've also done some training with Canada as well via Zoom, you know, and at some point I'm hoping that we'll get back to in-person training. Right? Yes. As someone who's given present presentations myself, um, there's nothing like that old school presentation environment, you know, where you got a room full of people and they're just energized and they're ready to learn. And, and you all can't see Dan and I, but I'm talking with my hands right here. And, you know, it's just something about that, you know, being in person. So yes, yes. I, I really hope that that happens. So everyone who's listening, I just, I'm just nodding my head as Dan is speaking because everything he says is just resonating with me, not only as a mom and as a podcaster, but also as someone who used to work in the substance abuse field. As someone who has benefited from hearing you you speak virtually, you, you really hit home the importance of FASD in all areas of care, especially substance use. So Many moons ago in a land far, far away, actually not in a land far, far away, because I did work in substance abuse in North Carolina. A long time ago, I worked in substance use, not only as a music therapist, but as a substance use counselor and, and professional. And I can tell you, I, I still have very dear friends who are now, you know, kind of high ranking in, in substance use clinics, you know, different organizations. FASD is never mentioned. Not that I'm aware of. And, and these people, you know, are they they would tell me if it was FASD is not mentioned and you are changing that conversation. And, and, and I'm happy to hear that it's in in more than one state that that gives me hope to hear that. OK, we need to introduce the FASD conversation because we understand, Dan, you and I know that substance use is a cyclic. It's a generational disorder. And we need to recognize that and be proactive because everything in treatment is reactive unless we know the source of where things are coming from. For example, if somebody is self-medicating, well, we need to know, you know, if, if obviously if they're using to self-medicate, we need to know the source of that. And if the source is stemmed in the brain from FASD or another brain-based diagnosis, then we need to approach that differently. I'm going to pass the soapbox to you. Tell me why it's so important for us to have this conversation about having FASD not only addressed, but as a part of treatment with the substance use population. Okay. I think there, there are a number of reasons. Um, I think the kind of the overall for me is that if we don't recognize it in people who are in treatment, and this also goes for mental health treatment, 
um, as well, then there is a high risk that they will end up repeatedly in jail, repeatedly homeless or dead. And that's the bottom line. It's like we can prevent that if we begin to recognize it. The other thing is that treatment for substance use, and, and this is an issue that I have with places that say you can only use evidence-based practices. Uh, there is no evidence-based practice that I know of that works with everybody. And an evidence-based practice means that in research, it worked with a majority of people. But it also means that there could be a large minority of people, like 40% or 30%, with whom it does not work. And that's, for the most part, people with an FASD. So when I hear, you know, like SAMHSA would say, on a, you know, I worked for a SAMHSA-funded program, but they would say, we will only fund programs that use evidence-based practices, they're setting people up to fail. And when we look at treatment in, let's, we'll take substance use as the issue, it, substance use treatment, um, the, the, the research in substance use treatment, again, that works with the majority of people is very much based on verbal receptive language processing, which we know is impaired in FASD across the IQ span. So individual talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, those are the techniques we use. AA, NA, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, it's all based on verbal receptive language processing skills and cognitive skills. So if somebody isn't getting it, I mean, and then, and they're also all based on the concept that people need to take responsibility for their actions and learn by experiencing the consequences of their actions. And we know because of the way the brain processes information due to the damage caused by prenatal exposure, uh, we know that the brain does not get cause and effect and they don't get abstract concepts like historical time and future time. So they don't get that reward and consequence approach. You know, so the idea, which I've heard in substance use treatment programs, that in order to go on a pass for the weekend, you have to write a request and submit it by Wednesday at, at noon. And if you don't submit it by Wednesday by noon, then you're not gonna go. Well, the other thing that's often difficult for people with an FASD is written language. And my son, Bill had neuropsych testing done when he was 12 years old. And the thing that stuck with me for all the years after that was that the neuropsychologist said, never ask him to do expository writing. Never ask him to write a story, write a paragraph. And I've run into this doing um, IEP, going to IEP meetings with with uh, adolescents with an FASD, other adolescents where teachers would say they have to write in their journal or they have to write, you know, this one student had to, you know, in English, they had to read a book and then write a paragraph about the book. And he loved reading and he could tell you about the book, but he couldn't write it. And the teacher was so resistant to, I said, well, can he dictate it to his father? Can he talk into a, a tape recorder? Um, can he talk into the computer and get like dragon speak? No, he has to write it in the, because that's what everybody has to do. So he, you know, he would get zeros even though he read the books. So it's the same thing in treatment. It's like, you can't have, have them keep a journal 
or, you know, write this thing on their own if they're really, and the concept is if they're motivated to go on a pass, then they will, they will complete this, uh, you know, request. And thinking, thinking about it, Dan, from, from a mama, you know, brain-based neurobehavioral point of view too, all the executive functioning that's required in writing that pass mm-hmm. is, is, is going to be more than most adults with FASD can, can carry out. Because if you think about what's required in, in that, okay, okay, you have to go get, okay, the pass is due by a certain date. So that person has to get the pass. That person, person has to think about, okay, yes, I need to write this down. Remember it on time. I mean, that's more than three steps right there, mm-hmm. you know? So not only is the written expression, but that the actual executive functioning in that task, they're not, that's, you know, that's not, that's something that needs to be accommodated. You know, and and just hearing that and and I'm thinking about, you know, again, my experiences working as substance use, too. Yes, that's that was required. And and, you know, the counselors just say, oh, they they can do it. They they just they're not doing it. Well, maybe they can't because they actually don't have that ability in there because of an FASD. The other thing, Dan, I remember, too. So this was when I was living in in Miami and working at the VA and and working in substance use. I remember so many of our vets would say, I'm really hopeful, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, we'd have our treatment team meeting. And then what's the after plans? They're going to go back to the same place. Mm -hmm. They're going to go back to the same house. And that gets back to what you were saying in the beginning about modeling. And okay, so somebody's finishing treatment, somebody you you did good, you went through all the hoops and everything. And they're going right back to the same people, the same places, the same hangouts, the same everything. Again, you're just like you said, you're setting them up for that recidivism, which is going to be worse. So, you know, how can we convince, you know, the just besides much needed legislation, you know, how can we convince people who work in both mental health and substance use? Okay. This really needs to be not only accommodated in so many levels, but there needs to be this, this modeling, this, this new approach of, of modeling what, you know, you want the outcomes to look like, because again, you, in an encapsulated, you know, treatment environment, which I know nowadays is much different. I mean, I I did this in the nineties. So it was, you went in for 30 days and you did your thing and then you went out, you know, now I'm sure it's, it's way different, but it's still based on, like you said, the expectation that they can do it. This is, again, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. So in your opinion, then what needs to change in order for that and I mean, this is, we're, we're probably going to talk way over, <laughs> way over time here, but we know how many individuals with FASD end up using drugs, drinking, you know, end up being on substances. How can we change it so that when they're in substance use settings that we can say, okay, we're not setting them up to go back to the same thing again. What, what are some things? And, and you worked for my goodness, the, the, the big, probably the biggest place you could work for in substance use. 
what are your thoughts? What are your suggestions? Well, I think one thing is to recognize those who have an FASD by screening everybody. And, and what happened at the center was I got, I, we developed the life history screen and I got the center of excellence to fund 10 women's residential substance use treatment programs around the country to um, implement the life history screen and modifications to treatment because we came up with very specific mod- you know, what do you, what do you do differently and how do you do it? Um, unfortunately, they got the first year of training on the screen and training on the modifications and then our funding was cut. So they didn't get the, you know, it was supposed to be a five-year project. But there are, there's one agency that's based in Texas who um, continued to do the screen, use the screen. And I've continued to work with them. Uh, I've done training and follow-up with staff. So part of it is training staff in understanding FASD. And especially because there are, no, there are a lot of staff in substance use treatment who are people in recovery. And that is wonderful because it's kind of that peer approach. But sometimes the, the sense is, you know, I had to hit rock bottom before I was willing to stay sober. You need to do the same thing. And helping them understand that not everybody is the same. And what worked for you, which is really important, might not work for this person because of how their brain is working. So I think the idea of, I mean, the first step is doing getting the ability to train all staff working in substance use treatment to understand FASD, that kind of basic understanding of FASD. Who are these people with an FASD who they're seeing? Because they're seeing, they're seeing them in their programs. And they're the ones who get them really frustrated because they are the ones who say, oh yeah, I know what I need to do. And then they don't do it. Yes, I know what I need to do, stay sober. And then they go out and use again. And you know, also, and it goes back to what I said before, which was the recognition of the, un, the need to understand what's causing a behavior, not what the behavior is. So when my son got into middle school, he came home that one day and he said, dad, every day I walk into school, I feel stupid. Well, how many of us would put ourselves in a situation where we feel stupid every day? That's intolerable. And what I often say is that one of the ways to deal with that kind of emotional pain where you are told you can do it, you're not trying hard enough, and they really can't do it without the right supports. One of the ways to deal with that emotional pain is to use substances. Substance use. It's not a great long-term approach, but I understand. Yeah. So we need to understand, just as you said, Natalie, why, you know, what's going on? Not just, oh, they've been using, but why? Mm-hmm. We have to stop using just verbal approaches. Yeah use multiple senses, you know, use more visuals and tactiles and other things. We know that there's problems in the the area of the brain responsible for working memory so that we have to give the person one direction at a time, cut down on the number of rules. I worked with one agency that had 63 rules and 58 consequences for negative behaviors. (sighs) And my 60, how could anybody? And the interesting <laughs> thing was, I said to them, for each rule, I said to the staff, why do you have this rule? Some of the rules they said, oh, I don't know, that's been there forever. Well, find out because maybe you don't need that rule because 63 are way too many. One of the rules was, and this was a residential substance use treatment program, 
there were no weapons allowed on the grounds. Now, I didn't say, okay, that makes a lot of sense. No, I said, why do you have that rule? And they said, because we want people to feel safe while they're here. I said, that makes a lot of sense. Do you tell people that? No. Think about how often do we say to people, here's the rule, here's what happens if you break it. How often do we say, this is why we have the rule? Rarely. So not only do we need to limit the number of rules, but explain to people, and this is everybody, not just those with an FASD, why we have the rule. If you can't explain why, the, why there is this rule, you shouldn't have it. So that was one thing, is cut down on the number of rules. One direction or one step at a time. And remember the modeling. So the modeling is you do something with them. And in substance use, the other thing is, there's this concept that if I do something with them or for them, I'm just fostering dependency and I'm enabling them. Enabling, yep. Enabling. Just, just going to say that magic word, enabling. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I, you know, often say that, you know, as a parent, because raising Bill, I was the parent. Nobody wanted to deal with me because I wouldn't let anything go. And um, I was often told that I was over-involved, overprotective, enmeshed, enabling, and unwilling to let go. And what I tell parents now is if anybody says that to you, say to them, thank you very much for recognizing that. <laughs> I love that. Or I, I'm doing something right. Exactly. I hope right. I hope so. Uh, yeah. Because I hope I'm enabling my my loved one to, to succeed, to do well, yes. to yes. reach their potential. And enabling doesn't have to be negative. Yeah. And when I do training, and this is why I like doing training in person, because I can see people's faces, especially in substance use, I'll say, I hope everybody in this room is enabling everybody they work, they work with or live with. And I see like the deer in headlights. And I say, because I hope that you're enabling them to succeed with whatever it takes. But it's t- I know that there are negative parts to that, which we want to avoid, but there are a lot of positives to enabling. Right. It's and, and, and it's really thinking yeah. about it from like supporting. It really mm-hmm. is you're, yeah. you're putting supporting in that part of enabling, which right. enabling something that is destructive or harmful, that's the negative connotation right. of enabling. Yeah. But yeah. enabling when you're like you just said, you're walking alongside, you, that's the supportive part. And, and that's what we need to, to focus on. And I'm I'm writing everything you say, Dan, because I am going to post these. I mean, <laughs> you know, the whole thing about explaining why you have a rule. And, and I have... I have experienced that. And when we explain something to our son and we're like, okay, well, because this is unsafe and this is why nine times out of 10, when we just do that simple thing, they'll be like, okay, you know, and sometimes his working memory may not remember that, but it it depends on the day. However, Again, just going back to that saying, you know, okay, well, why do I have to do this again? Or why can't we do this again? Just saying, this is why, you know, and, yeah. and making it very concrete too, mm-hmm. you know, yep. making that, you know, the whole weapons with the, okay, because we don't want people to be said, that's pretty concrete. You know, that's, that's not talking in an abstract way. So I, I really, really appreciate that, Dan. Oh, I, I, okay. Everyone, Dan's going to be back in 2022. <laughs> just to let you know, we're going to keep this conversation going. Even if it's in person, we're going to, we're going to have Dan back because this is just so needed. We can I, can I just say one more? Sorry to interrupt. Uh, you, no, absolutely. One Go more ahead. thing in terms of what you're saying, Natalie, is that I think the key is we need to be able to 
look at each individual as a true individual, a true individual, and say, what does this person need in order to reach their, their best potential? Not to succeed because we have our own ideas I, about I what like success to say, is. Su- I like to say success is a spectrum. Right. And it right. looks different every day. So that's right. I like so what I, do they need yeah. in order to reach their best potential? Yes. And how do we help them get to that point? Yes. Yes. I agree. You know, and, and that's why for some people, yes, they respond to the typical treatment. That's yeah. why we do it. But for those where it's not working, it needs to be let's individual. Do something different. Let's not keep doing the same thing. Yes. And, and that's what I wrote. It needs to be individualized. Yeah. And we don't like hearing, okay. So being on the one side of the of the the table, you know, being on the side that was used to be the therapist, used to be the counselor, when we hear individualized, people automatically think money. You know, if you're in that treatment mm-hmm. team meeting, and I, you know, I wasn't anybody who made budget decisions, but when you say, okay, this needs to be different than what the typical, you know, 28 days or whatever, when you say that, at least when again. We're talking decades ago, but that, you know, when that word individualized or specialized or anything that was out of the norm would come up, that was the first thing I think a lot of administrators would think is that's going to cost more money. However, however, getting back to the root of this, thinking about the brain, getting back to the root of this, if you don't get to the root of substance use, mental health, any other type of, you know, program and in that route is the brain, then it's going to cost more money because you're going to have more treatment or incarceration or justice mm-hmm. system or anything that's going to cost you more money down in the end. So right. I love it when guests tell me and, and I, you know, when I worked, I loved it when, when people would say, you know, when you're proactive, you are actually thinking long-term, which is saving money down the, you know, people don't understand that just taking that time and that effort and whatever difference it is to, to have that treatment be individualized or to have it be accommodating um, down the road, you are saving a lot of recidivism, further treatments, further things like that. It, it really, when you're proactive, you are, it really just is the best case scenario. And it, and it, I am just so happy to hear that what you've been doing, especially with getting to the root of screening, you know, at birth, it's just this whole screening from the beginning that really, really tells me that that's, that's proactivity and that's what we need in any population, but especially with FASD and especially FASD and substance use. So, all right, everybody, we're, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off of my soapbox, Dan, before I, before we, we go to our next question, do you have any other, anything else you want to say? Yes. Um, Because I think that having been a direct care staff and having been a therapist in residential treatment and outpatient services and in hospital setting, it is so much easier to treat everybody the same and to say, here are the rules. Here's what happens if you break them. Here's our treatment. If you do well, here's the result. If you don't do well, either you get kicked out or you leave AMA or, you know, that's, that's our treatment. And it is easier to do that. But we have to really take a step back and begin to say everybody really is an individual. 
And, you know, if you, if you use the, the analogy of saying, if you had somebody um, in your program who was blind, would you tell them that they have to write down, you know, the, re the, the request for a pass? Um, if they were deaf, would you tell them that they had to sit in, in group and listen to what happened in group and then be able to say what that means for them? No, you know, um, we would accommodate that. This is a disability that again has to do with the brain, so we don't see it. And because often their expressive language is so much better than their receptive language, they come across as more intact than they are. So I understand when I talk with staff, it is hard. I'm, I'm not asking you to do something easy. It is harder. But if you begin to look at each individual and talk about, okay, what does this person need? Because the response I get is, I can't treat this one differently because the others will say you're not being fair. And if we really understand that being fair means we treat everybody based on what they need, I know you think that he's getting away with something I don't let you get away with but you're able to do things that he has difficulty with. And you don't talk about diagnosis. What we're really trying to do here is be fair and look at what each of you needs in order to reach your best potential. And, and that's, that's going to be different for each of you. Yes. Yes. Oh, Dan, this is great. This is, this is a hundredth episode, people. This is what <laughs> we're talking about. And I am so thankful to be having this conversation with Dan. And I'm writing these nuggets of wisdom down <laughs> so that people can see this because I am so, so thankful that we're having this conversation. So, so we're talking about this subject and Dan is going to be giving a two-part webinar series about what we're talking about today. So Dan, let's talk about this. And um, obviously we're talking about FASD and substance use, but people who will be signing up for uh, both parts of the, of the webinar, what will they be learning from them? Okay. Um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they will be learning to um, that the importance of recognizing individuals with FASD, an FASD, um, how they might be able to recognize them, um, and you know, that there are ways to recognize them, the importance of recognizing them, um, and how it also helps them, especially if they're, if they're working in the field, helps them feel better about their work, because then you see a different response in people, um, which I think is really important. I'm hoping that they'll get they'll get through what I think is really important. I call it moving from a reward and consequence system of care to a positive focus system of care. Um, and I used to call it positive reinforcement, but then people think that that's, you know, if you do this, you get this reward. And if you start a sentence with if or when, you're setting up a reward and consequence, which they don't get because they don't get cause and effect often. Um, but a positive focus system of care is really beginning by talking about strengths, continuously talking about strengths. And it doesn't mean ignoring challenging behaviors, but it's we need to identify strengths in order to know what we can use to address those challenging behaviors. So I'm hoping that that kind of positive focus system approach that people will get that. Um, and then also, you know, some ideas of some strategies that can really help people, um, again, reach their potential. 
that are, you know, modifications, how, you know, the fact that we can modify motivational interviewing. I always say we don't have to invent new treatment, but we have to modify what we do. And there has to be the ability to modify what we do because my discussion with SAMHSA, with NIAAA, with CDC, when I was at the FASD center was, you know, nobody funds when they're, when, when, when some researcher has an idea that they want to develop a practice, right? Because it's usually what they feel they're, in, they're interested in. And they look at, you know, they, they test it out and it works with 65% of people. Nobody looks at that 35% who do, don't, who do not do well with that approach and say, okay, why aren't they responding to that approach? And how can that be modified so that they can be successful? And that's what's missing. And that's, that's our people for the most part. So I'm hoping that they'll get that sense of the importance of recognizing FASD and the fact that there are things that they can do differently that don't cost any money. But what you said before, Natalie is absolutely right, that you know, if we really put those efforts in now, it is so much cheaper than, I mean, here's this person back in treatment for the fourth time. This is another issue I have in terms of substance use treatment, that when somebody's back in treatment for the third time or the fourth time, our response from a treatment point of view is, Relapse is part of recovery. Relapse is part of recovery. And I have a problem with that. And my problem is not that we know that recovery is not a straight line. And we know that people relapse. Understood. However, when they're back in treatment for the third time and we're saying relapse is part of recovery, what we're saying is you are not ready yet to respond to our treatment. And when you are ready, then you will respond to our treatment which means that it's up to the person to change. And we as treatment people never have to look at changing what we do because it's, it's up to them. They're not ready for recovery yet. And I think we have to stop if they're back in treatment, I would say even the second time, but especially the third time, what can we do differently to help them be successful in treatment? What do they need in order to be successful in treatment? That, that, I think, is, should be the mantra rather than relapse as part of recovery. I, I'm just so glad you're bringing this up, Dan, because it's really important that we stop in any treatment population, especially substance use, mental health, that we say, okay, why is this relapse occurring and what can we do differently? We need to take the responsibility off of them off mm -hmm. of the client or, you know, when we're talking about our kids in the school setting and say, okay, well, why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they learning this? We need to put the responsibility on ourselves and say, okay, this is what we need to change in order, like you said, for this person to have their best potential and to meet their potential, their full potential. So I, I'm just nodding and writing all this down, nodding my head and writing all this down, Dan. This is this is amazing. This is amazing. So we will be sharing the conference information and the conference links and how you can sign up or get more information in today's program notes, as well as on our social media posts. So if you are interested in this two-part webinar series, which is happening very soon, then um, please check out our program episode program notes, as well as our social media posts. 
So Dan, now we're going to shift into a little bit of a different space where we, you know, we've been talking about as, as substance use professionals and, and, and mental health. Now let's shift into the advocacy space because you really, really are a champion advocate in the community of FASD. We often get emails or messages from parents who are brand new to diagnoses or about to get diagnoses or just, you know, parents who are starting their journey or maybe they're um, not as far in their journey, you know, as, as, as we are. Let's, can you address them just to talk about some, some either tips or just strategies on how they can go from, okay, I think I might know how to talk about this to someone, but I'm not sure to being a confident advocate in FASD. What would you, what would you recommend to them? Okay. That's a great question. I think one of the things is, you know, first to do some reading, get some background information that can be easily shared. Um, I think the bait, the, the, the key points are things that you said earlier, Natalie, that, FASD is a brain-based disorder and that the behaviors that we typically see are due to how the brain is functioning. So understanding, getting some more understanding of the brain, and I don't mean doing, you know, like the scientific anatomy, but the structures of the brain, the areas of the brain that we know are affected by prenatal exposure, what those areas do and what that means in terms of why we need to do something different. Like, for example, to be a good advocate, to be able to say, you know, the area of the brain that we know from research is responsible for immediate or working memory is impaired in FASD. Immediate and working memory is what we rely on whenever we tell somebody to do something. So as a parent, if you tell your child, go upstairs, brush your teeth, get in your pajamas, get ready for bed, you're relying on their working memory to do that. If their working memory is impaired, they'll go upstairs. They'll, by the time they get upstairs, they have no idea what to do next. So maybe they'll go into their room, they'll play a game or they'll watch TV or be on the computer and you'll go up and they're fooling around and they haven't done what you told them. And it looks like and feels like purposeful behavior, but recognizing the damage in working memory. If they are in school and a teacher says, class, take out your math books, turn to page 43, do problems one through 10, you're relying on their working memory to do that. And this is the kid who can't find their math book. Even if they find it, by the time they get it, they have no idea what to do next. So it looks like then they talk with other kids, they're up out of their seat, and they're seen as a disruptive kid. So recognizing being able for parents to talk about, you know, this is a brain issue, not a willful behavior issue. And these behaviors that appear to be willful. Well, we went over the rules in class and they repeated them. They know what they are. They broke them on purpose. No, because in FASD, there's problems. And, you know, I've thought of different ways of doing it. You know, some people in the field used to talk about um, people with an FASD needing an external brain. I happen to not like that concept because I think it conveys that they don't have an internal brain. And they do have a, an internal brain. Um, so now lately I've been thinking about, you know, think about the brain as having our, all of our brains having lots of different file drawers, like hundreds of different file drawers. And we, somebody tells us something, 
we get the information and we know where to store it, what file drawer it goes into in the brain. And then when we need that information, we go right to that file drawer and we open it and there's the information. So we can get it into our brain, store it properly and recall it when we need it. In FASD, what often happens is they take, they get the they hear the information, they go to the file drawer, file drawer stuck. So maybe they open a different file drawer and they put it in there. Then when they need it, they go to the file drawer where it should be and it's not there and they have no idea where it is or they never get the file drawer open. So the difficulty is taking information into the brain and even if it gets in, it doesn't get stored properly. And even if it gets stored somewhere, they can't recall it when they need it. So that's a, that's a brain issue. That's not a willful behavior issue. So I think that for parents to be able to advocate on the brain basis of FASD, I think is, is one of the most important things. Um, the other is to talk about strengths. And I think for, for families, especially with kids and adolescents who have an IEP, that every IEP meet or every meeting, I don't care what it is, if it's an IEP meeting or any meeting, every meeting should start with everybody in the room going around and talking about what are this person's strengths. I love that. I love that. I think that should be like mandated for every IEP meeting. You yeah. start off by talking about that child's strengths. You're in this boardroom sitting around a table and all of these professionals, teachers, everybody are, are telling you what's wrong with your child instead of, hey, you know, your kid does this really well or hey, this, you know, so I agree. Uh, talking about strengths in those meetings. Yes. Addressing the needs, addressing what needs to be supported. But let's 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 start with strengths, you yeah. know. Oh, I just I think I just created a new hashtag, Dan. Start with strengths. <laughs> yep. And the other thing is that, that at one point I was doing this consulting with this substance use treatment agency and they were working with two women. I think they were in their late 20s. Um, it was a residential program. They had both screened as having a probable FASD um, and. Uh, they wanted me, they, they were having a, their clinical staff meeting and they wanted me to meet them and give them some, give the staff some ideas of how they could work with them better. So they brought each of them up individually, introduced me to them. And the first thing I asked each of these women was, what do you do well? Neither one of them could answer the question. And if I asked them, what are they, what are their problems? They would have rattled that off in a minute. To me, that speaks to how much we are a problem-based society. We get paid for dealing with problems. Our meetings focus on problems. Our handbooks, client handbooks, focus on problems. Our policies and procedures focus on problems. And that's what we need to change um, because we need to, to start talking about strengths and, and real strengths. Um, and, you know, sometimes people can't, you know, don't, they don't think that we'll get to that, you know, but, you know, oh, yeah, he, you know, she has very pretty hair. Well, that's nice, but that's not the strengths I'm talking about, you know. So I think that as parents, we need to be forceful in saying, no, before we get to this, I want to hear what each of you see as his or her strengths, what they do well, I love what they that. enjoy doing. I love that. I love that. And that right there, you just said it. 
we are a problem-based society. We are. And education, unfortunately, has really shifted to problem-based rather than strength-based, you know, mm-hmm. and that's that's one of the things we embraced about homeschooling was that, yes, we addressed the, the, the support of the needs, but, you know, for us, homeschooling meant we could focus on those strengths and learn that, you know, our son was gifted in X, Y, and Z and that our daughter is gifted in, you know, A, B, and C. So <laughs> this is really a discussion not only about how we should advocate for our kids, but how society needs to advocate better for strengths rather than looking all the problems. I, I mm-hmm. think this is just brilliant, Dan. This is yeah. great. So let, let's. What, can I say one more thing about advocacy? Absolutely. Which, and having um, families advocate. And I hate to say it, but this has been my experience is that if, especially if a child has an IEP or an adolescent or child or adolescent has an IEP, it is in, essential for families to know education law because my experience has been, and maybe this has only been with me with Bill, but I don't think so, um, that schools sometimes are not honest. You know, they'll say, they'll say things sometimes like, well, you know, yes, this is in his IEP and we know he needs this, but we don't have the funding for that. Sorry, that's not my problem. That's your problem. That's the law. If it's in the IEP, you have to provide it. But so I think it's important and most states have an education law center, um, get to know them, get comfortable with them. In Pennsylvania, the education law center finally sent me one of the education laws, the whole whole volume, (laughs) because I kept on calling them and saying, can the school do this? This is what they said, are they able to do this? Uh, And I had to fight for extended school year and they denied it and then I had to appeal it, but you need to know, you need to know the law because I think that that's the other piece. And then as they get older, if they get involved in something with the justice system, it's essential to educate attorneys in understanding FASD and how to approach them. Referees are really good in understanding, you know, helping them understand that. Um, advocates, guardians ad litem, it's as, as family members, we have a responsibility to educate others. And often they won't listen. And I know that as a, you know, I've had the, the, the privilege of being both a parent and professional in the field. So professionals have been, it's been harder for professionals to dismiss, dismiss me as just another parent who doesn't know what they're talking about. And it's been harder for parents to dismiss me as a professional who doesn't know what it's really like. You know, because often as a parent, you say, take my kid for a week and then let's talk. Um, so I think that that sometimes it's part of advocacy is knowing who you can bring to the meeting, who you can bring to a meeting, because sometimes they will hear something from somebody else. And it's the same thing that you as a parent have said. But they'll hear, and it's just, that happens with our kids, too, by the way, that, you know, they'll list, they'll, you know, somebody else will say, tell them something and they'll say, oh, wow. And it's like, wait a minute, I said the same thing, but you know, we're just their parents. So, oh my goodness, Dan, I love this. I love this. This has been, this is again, I keep seeing it. This is a hundredth episode. Yeah, this is, we are really getting into this. So let's talk before we end. We always end on hope. We always Mm -hmm. end our 
our podcast episodes on hope. But before we do, and, and you know what, Dan, again, thank you for all of the fighting you've been doing for us in the FASD community and in the substance use community on behalf of, of, you know, our listeners and the people in our community. Thank you. Thank you from, again, this is Thanksgiving week from the bottom of my heart. Thank you because your fighting has given our kids and I say kids, you know, affectionately Mm -hmm. more opportunities. And I don't think we'd be where we are today without champions like you who were fighting decades ago before this was even a discussion. So from the bottom of my heart, just thank you again. Um, Before we end, let's talk about what you're doing in 2022. Obviously, you're doing this wonderful two-part webinar series. Uh, What are you doing, um, you know, in the beginning of 2022 that people can look forward to? Well, again, I mean, I'm continuing to work with the state of Michigan. Hopefully, we're going to expand that. Um, Unfortunately, you know, the, the premier FASD conference has been the International Conference in Vancouver, and that is no no longer, uh, which was the amazing place, an amazing place for individuals with FASD to meet others. So I think we need to we need to find a way to build that kind of conference again. But so you know to spread the word. So continuing to work with screening and assessment and interventions, broadening it in Pennsylvania. And if we can get some data out of that that shows that by doing this, you know, we see improvement, I think that that'll be really helpful. Um, I'm going to be doing some more work with um, Thunder Bay area in Ontario. Uh, I did an initial training for their substance use around substance use treatment. So, you know, but again, it's a series because you have to do the the, you know, how does this impact substance use, but then you have to do the, what do you do about it components. So I'll be working on that. And then whatever, I mean, I'm always, whatever people ask me to do. Last week, I did a a presentation for a charter school uh, because they had uh, two kids in their class who were having difficulty, you know, who had an FASD. So whatever comes along the pike and people ask me to do something, if I can do it, I'll, I do it. So we'll keep our eyes and ears open and, right. and, and keep a watch out for you, Dan. You never so, know where I'll show up. <laughs> <laughs> so we're ending this awesome episode. Awesome advocacy in action. I, again, thank you for all you've done and all you continue to do. Thank you for the most vigorating conversation I think I've had in months. This has been such a wonderful conversation, Dan. And I, I just, just, fills me with hope and gives me so much perspective about not only about FASD, but just about how we view things in general. So we're ending this episode on hope. And you've seen a lot. You've been through a lot. You've experienced a lot. For those listeners out there, whether they be parents, professionals, those who want to learn more about FASD, fill in the blank. What words of hope can you give to people out there? just about advocacy, FASD, and how they can, they can help make a better change? Well, I'll tell you that one of the, the honors that I've had over the years is meeting and talking with and becoming friends with a number of individuals with an FASD. Um, and 
what I have seen is that those as, as adults who are doing really well, um, and uh, many of them have been through jail multiple times or substance use, but those who are doing really well are those who have said that they've had somebody to support them throughout. So maintaining that support, letting the person know that you're there for them, you know, even when their behavior drives you crazy, that you're there for them, that, you, that you're there to support them, that you love them. That is so, so important and so helpful. Um, I remember years ago, I talked about, I did an informal, totally informal, unscientific survey, talking with families of individuals with an FASD where you know their kids had grown up and left home in a positive way. So they didn't run away. They didn't end up in jail. They, you know, they, they left home in a positive way. And it seemed at that point that the average age when that occurred was about 29 or 30 years old. So the concept, so like let go of this concept that at 18 years old, they're going to be able to be on their own. I mean, I had that with Bill, you know, at 18, he'd be on his own and be able to support me in the way that I would like to be accustomed, but that didn't work. So you know, just that that hanging hang in there. Um, the article that I really have wanted to write for a long time, that I think is missing in the field, is the tie of the title of it, which is the joys of raising an individual with an FASD. And we don't talk enough about the joys, and that's part of the recognizing the strengths. You know, what is this person, what do they do well? And also, so it's it's the importance of recognizing the joys of either working or living with this person and also carving out time to have fun with them. And I think that that is so essential, no matter what is going on, like every day to have fun with them and every day to tell them what they do well. And the last thing I'll say is that I did a training uh, a few years ago and um, for an agency. And one of the staff people was talking about her 14 year old son who was diagnosed with an FASD, who was very angry, very sullen, like wouldn't eat with the family, wouldn't do anything with the family. He was just angry all the time. And I talked about this, have fun, tell them, you know, I always say to parents, tell your, start off small. Every day I want you to tell your child what they've done well and what they're doing right and, you know, what they do well. And write down everything that you tell them, because when things aren't going well, you'll forget all of that. Then you need to pull out that list and remember it. Um, so this, this staff member sent me an email the next, the next morning, and she said, I just want to tell you that I went home and I said to my son, I just want to thank you for all the help you've been giving your younger brother the last few weeks. I really appreciate that. She said for the first time in months, he smiled had dinner with the family, they had a great evening together. Now, is that gonna work every day? No, but it did work that day. And just that piece about, you know, instead of, okay, what happened in school today? And what did you do wrong? And what, blah, 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 blah. And you didn't do your chores and you didn't do this. It's like, start off with what they are, what they did do and set aside time to have fun with them. And I think that there are so many joys in either living or working with the person with an FASD that we need to, we need, really need to focus on that. I have to say that this is probably one of my favorite lists of hope takeaways that I've been <laughs> doing in a hundred episodes. So Dan, you have been a delight to be on FASD hope. And I really, really hope that 
those listeners out there get the hope that you have given me today. So Dan Dubofsky, thank you so much for everything you do. And thank you for being on FASD Hope. And thank you very much, Natalie, for having me here. I really appreciate the, the opportunity to talk with you. Take care, everyone, and have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.